What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. Thanks for joining us. This week we are joined by retired Brigadier General and author of Robert E. Lee and Me, Ty Sidule. It's a really great book. Remember, we take your questions each episode, so write to politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can and don't forget to tell us where you're from. This episode is sponsored by our friends Magic Spoon. Please check out the links to our sponsors in the show notes. We thank you for supporting these sponsors. It helps to make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. James, uh, the big the big story this week uh, is the, what I think is a huge success that uh, Biden and the Democrats scored in getting that COVID relief stimulus package through. Uh, it, is, it is, as Joe said in another context, a big effing deal. Almost $1.9 trillion, uh, seven weeks into his term. It's going to make a huge difference to a lot of struggling people. The jobless is going to also lift wages, help black farmers especially, schools opening, vaccine distributions. You know, maybe one day we'll look back and say it was a little bit too big. That's a hell of a lot better than saying it was inadequate. Uh, and I think Pelosi and uh, Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House, Chuck Schumer, Joe Manchin, all deserve great credit, along with the White House, who really did this very skillfully. So this thing, is, uh, is pointed out, is enormously popular, right? Not is it, it – I mean, the public likes it, and a high percentage of self-described Republicans like this. And one of the interesting things about the past few days is it, it, that has been – almost exclusively plus the vaccine rollout, obviously, what Biden and the Biden administration is focused on. If you go to Fox or, or, or Newsmax, any of that, the number one focus, and we'll talk about this later in the show, is Dr. Seuss. Hmm. I, I, I mean, it's almost Ron Brownstein, uh, I saw him on a clip on television, and basically... They have given up. The Republican Party is no longer a party of limited spending or low def, not that it ever was, <laughs> okay? But at least it, it made noise in that direction. They have gone all culture all the time. And we're just going to see, to some extent, how powerful it is because obviously the one thing you say is, you know, I think Biden doesn't play along with this. He really doesn't. And there's probably some frustration on the Democratic left. But 
it's a mono mono. We're going with you know with vaccine distribution and 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 you know COVID uh, relief, and you're going with Dr. Seuss. I, I think I'll take that the parameters of that battle right right now. Yeah, I would too, James. You don't believe in those uh, Republican born again virgins? <laughs> no, <laughs> I have been. I haven't been, but many people have been fooled multiple times. Yeah, all right, we did it once, but we're not going to do it again. All right, right, right. yeah. We're the, yeah. these. The, it's just shocking. These deficits. It's just yeah. shocking. Oh my God! It's yeah, shocking. Honest to God, there's gambling going on upstairs. Um, how, however, you know, at at some point, if the economy comes back, I just wish they had a mechanism in there, as we talked about earlier, where you had automatic spending increases, you know, based on GDP growth or job right. growth or something else. Right, I do too. But I, I do think, you know, I, I just add this in, in this triumphant, joyous moment when this huge accomplishment was here. You know, I'm not sure that the Larry Summers of the world or the corporatists or whatever you want to call them, I don't have a point that this could cause some some overheating, you know, interest rates grow up. I mean, they're, they're, this is not all good. There are things that you need to be on the lookout for, and I suspect if they can they can correct. But I would have preferred that they had the stabilizers. You know, let's just assume that people are right. Goldman Sachs is predicting seven point seven percent economic growth. We haven't seen seven point seven percent economic growth in this country since God, I don't know when, and of course, that's going to help a lot with the deficit numbers and everything else. But you're going to be operating pretty close to full capacity if these kind of mainstream predictions hold true. We could have a problem. Well, yeah, we could. But as I said, it's better to have a problem on that side uh, than a problem on the other side. Absolutely. I also think it's easier to correct. And uh, you have a – in the very best sense of this word, you have a very accommodating Federal Reserve now, a Federal Reserve chairman. And I say the best sense of the word because, uh, you know, Jay Powell now is paying equal attention to uh, employment and, uh, you know, economic growth as he is to inflation. And they can they they have some weapons that they can move, but I I they it's do. a it's they a do, good day. I think it is a very and, and nothing is worse the horror that that uh, let me be clear I'm not the horror that not not the the trouble the horror of what ordinary people have gone through in this past year right is just unimaginable. It's unimaginable the the, the damage that we've done to children's emotional and educational development by understandably not everybody's fault, you know missing this much school. So, yes, we've done something. I just, all I do is I, at, at this moment of triumph, I, I just said we, 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 we need to be vigilant pushing forward because there may have to be some corrections, as, you know, which always happen. Always yeah. happen. You it know. does. And, you know, in many ways, well, this is far worse than the, the financial meltdown of 08 or 09, and in some ways really far worse than even the, the Great Depression, the 30s, not as many jobless, but uh, what it did to children, what it's done to families, we've lost 500 and what, 30, 540,000 Americans. You know, there's a lot left to do as you start thinking about how it unfolds. Infrastructure, climate, more health care changes, child care, some of the stuff we've talked about here. And there's another reconciliation bill this summer. It's going to obviously be much tougher, but even more urgent than any of that, James, 
is that the Senate somehow pass H.R. 1, because what H.R. 1 does is it creates national voting standards and it blocks some of these right-wing Republican legislatures that are really trying to roll back voting rights to Jim Crow era. They really are trying to make it very difficult for blacks, people of color, and young people to vote, and they're doing it for a very simple reason, because it's the only way they're going to win elections. And it's going to require a change in the filibuster rule for that measure. But the most important for all those other huge issues, the most important issue ahead is what the Senate does on that bill. It does, and I, I don't. I think that Democrats should make voting rights a, a national issue and a part of the message of the party. It, as I never tire of saying, and I'll say it to, uh, to as long as I can speak, the. Felons getting the right to vote in Florida, okay, in 2018, which was a disappointing year for Democrats in Florida. We, we, we lost a Senate seat and lost the governorship, all right? Sixty percent said that, but, you know, when you've done the crime and done the time, you should be able to vote. Actually, These 64. pushing are not, yeah. are not, as made before, are not popular. Yeah. There's already in Georgia, there's some Republican pushback. It hadn't gotten enough attention, but there's some pushback. And, and, the, and you just got to do macro messaging. You don't want, look what they did in Iowa. Yeah, I, you know, yeah. I know Iowa's a, you know, become a red state. I, I, I just don't believe that people in Iowa have that, that sense of unfairness. And I, I really don't. And there needs to be some, some strict, you know, targeted, tight messaging here about fairness and the right to vote. And, uh, and it just can't, can't come from talking heads or, or, or pundits or, or, or observers. It's got to come from all across the country, and particularly if you're listening, corporate America. Yep. They need to unleash their power so their employees, their shareholders, their, their customers, their suppliers, all of the things when you talk about the corporate community, they need to get together behind letting people vote. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And you got to you, you ought to wage a public campaign and you have got to pass that legislation. And the way it's going to pass is, again, sitting there right there in the catbird seat, as is always the case or often the case, is West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin. And I will I will confidently predict that in the end, the president of the United States and the senator from West Virginia will get together and figure out a workaround. It'll be a Joe to Joe and they'll pass this critical Critical legislation. Um, James, uh, before we end this segment, you and I probably show that we're not really in touch with a lot of America because I don't think we're captivated as much by the Oprah, uh, Oprah Winfrey interview with, uh, with Harry and Meghan. I mean, I thought there were some interesting elements to it, particularly the stuff about race. What I find interesting is how the right wing in America and in Britain has really landed on her. You know why they landed on her? It's simple. She's a black woman. <laughs> I mean, it's really, really simple. And I see Piers Morgan, who's who I mainly remember. Piers Morgan. The only thing I know about Piers Morgan was he was that colossal failure when CNN made the huge mistake to pick him to succeed Larry King. He's now talking about his freedom of expression so he can trash this black woman. I, I just, uh, it's predictable. Well, it is, and it's, it's like the whole poker. always talk about Saul Alinsky. I mean, gee, I don't, no one's ever heard of Saul. Why do you use that name? Is there anything yeah. about the name? If it was Sam Adams, you think you'd have the same reaction? Look, my view of this whole thing, I am perpetually amused by it. 
And to me, it's all Mardi Gras, right? It's good. You go dress up and, you know, you have, you know, you have a flow, you know, carriage and you get taken around. And, and, but, but at the end of the day, it's all for, you know, in the, in the British monarchy has become what my cradle faith is, is the Roman Catholic Church. People just, they become ridiculous. And it's not that like, it's just like all powerful force in the world. It's like, okay, well, who cares what they think? I mean, you know, just to the point where we talked about last week where you have, you know, three archdioceses telling people not to take the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. I mean, that's about where it's ought to come. So I'm, I understand why people, you know, hate all the money that goes to it. And, you know, they, they, you know the definition of a dysfunctional family is a family with more than one member. You ever look at a picture of the royal family on a balcony? They're all nuts. Just like, it's just part of it, and people have figured it out. But I, I think they should be kept for their amusement value, and they're good for tourism. But I understand why other people would like to, yeah, you know, make Buckingham <clears throat> Palace a, a, a public housing center. Well, I tell you, I am amazed that this this is a story that has just uh, it's it's riveted America. I mean, you hear people uh, talking about it at the come CVS. On, come on, you know. since. What do you mean, come on? It has, it has. I mean, look at the numbers, James. If you look at the numbers and you look at the, you know, the reaction, it's just, I'm saying, I'm not one of them, but it has. And what what people like, look, I just want to say this, I got to, how do I say this delicately? The the power of femininity is undefeated, all right? From Anne Boleyn to Wallace Simpson to Meghan Markle. There's 800 years institution of, Power and glory and tradition. Uh-uh. <laughs> Big error here. <laughs> and so let's let, let's just say it, it's a it's a good thing to explore. Of course, people love the story. It's a prince, you know, it's a princess, you know, it's American, it's you know, uh, multiracial. It's got how could this story not be compelling in one sense? You know, it, yeah. and it's all kind of rich people. I mean, not rich, privileged people fighting with each other. I mean, Meghan Markle is is not living some kind of terrible life out there in California right now. I can assure you. Oh, and it just—you don't think you live a terrible life in a fifteen million dollar mansion? No, I think not. Okay, we and, let's oh, make a pledge. Oprah Winfrey, who's our own royalty. We're not going to revisit this one again. This one's over as far as we're concerned. Healthy and delicious breakfast doesn't have to be boring. And our favorite breakfast cereal, James, as you know, Magic Spoon has all those amazing flavors you love, but without all the bad stuff. We love it, and more importantly for us, our grandchild loves it too. With zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs in each serving. It's only 140 calories a serving. It's gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, and GMO-free, and tastes amazing. That's why we've got exciting news. Magic Spoon will be releasing two incredible new flavors this month for only a limited time. We're talking about cookies and cream and maple waffle. And if that isn't the most comforting, indulgent combination, I don't know what is. This is the ultimate treat-yourself combo. I I think the Magic Spoon people uh, market themselves very effectively as, as a breakfast cereal. If you're like me, I snack a lot, all right, in the afternoon or 
you know, even in mid-morning, I'll have like a peanuts around or something like that. That stuff is good to snack on all day. It's tasty, and unlike a lot of stuff that you snack on, is not particularly good for you. I don't think peanuts necessarily falls in that group, but, other, but you know, it's, it's, a, it's healthy, and it also can give you a little burst of energy as you go through your day, and it's, it's quite tasty. It's just, if somebody figured out at McDonald's, it should serve breakfast. It, well, the magic spoon should, you know, it's a kind of a, you know, good 14-hour-a-day snack and breakfast foods. So in my mind, it doubles up and you can try the different flavors. It's a hell of a product. Yeah, you know, I do the same thing, James, and there's so many other options. You can build your own box using cocoa, fruity, frosted, frosted, peanut butter, and cinnamon, in addition to what we mentioned earlier, to create your custom bundle that perfectly matches your taste. It's catching on the world over, so if you're listening from Canada, Magic Spoon now ships there as well. We just can't get over how good all the flavors are. Really, we can't, and neither can Kai. Kai's my grandson. Our secret, mixing cocoa with peanut butter, tastes exactly like a peanut butter cup. It's delicious, super healthy cereal that really brings joy to your bowl at any time of the day. You agree, James. I know you do. I agree. This should get a jelly flavor. (laughs) Called blueberry, blueberry jelly flavor. (laughs) They have peanut butter and jelly. Go to magicspoon.com slash warroom to grab the new limited edition of cookies and cream, maple waffle, or a custom bundle of cereals. Try it today. And be sure to use our promo code, warroom, that's all one word, at checkout to save five bucks off your order. The offer is now good anywhere in the United States or Canada, but only when you use our code at checkout. Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, James. This really tells you something. It's back with a 100% happiness guarantee. So you don't have to like it for any reason. You, we, they refund your money. No questions asked. Remember, get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash warroom or look for the link in our show notes and use the code warroom to save $5. Thank you, Magic Spoon, for sponsoring this episode. And thank you all for eating Magic Spoon for breakfast, or as James says, during the day. Hey, James, our guest is Brigadier General Ty Sidule. His book, Robert E. Lee and Me, is a confession by a West Point historian of his once reverence for Lee and the Confederacy. General, first of all, thanks for joining us. I got this book yesterday and I couldn't stop reading it. I loved it. First, I identify with you. I was born in a little town called Orange, Virginia. When I was young, my dad came back from the war. We moved to Pennsylvania, but I spent every summer till I was 14 in Orange. My grandmother, who I adored, was a member of the United Daughters of the Confederacy. There were pictures, two pictures of General Lee. We always called him General Lee in the house. And there was even a picture of his horse traveler. It was never the Civil War, it was the war between the states and sometimes the war of Northern northern aggression. That's what you grew up with and revered in Alexandria, Virginia. Tell us what, what your experience was like. Uh, very similar. I, I, I was in Alexandria, Virginia, and I wanted to be a gentleman. And uh, that came with status, it came with power. And Robert E. Lee was the epitome of a Virginia gentleman. And Virginia gentleman was a slightly higher caste than other Southern gentlemen. And my dad taught at a school, Episcopal High School, that um, had the descendants of Lee were there. And and Alexandria, everything around me showed me that that I wasn't only supposed to like Lee, uh, but to revere him. And so, you know, I'd say that on a scale of one to 10, uh, I would put Lee at about 11. And even though I was a good Episcopalian, went to church every Sunday, 
it was an acolyte, I would have put Jesus in the, say, four, five, six range. So it was reverential, not just, um, I didn't just like it. You tell us about your epiphany, though, and tell us about why this was central to the lost cause, the, one of the great discredited uh, moments in American history. Well, I mean, the, yeah, the, so the, the lost cause, I mean, just so we understand what the lost cause is, it is this belief system that comes after the war, uh, really starts almost at the very, when the, the smell of gunpowder is still on the battlefield when the South tries to come to grips with this, with, with its loss. I mean, it, it went to war to protect and expand slavery. And guess what happens? It actually loses that and, and black equality comes from that. And the, the tenets of this were the war wasn't fought over slavery, which is baloney, totally fought over slavery. It said enslaved people were happy, which is just monstrous. Uh, slavery features rape, um, murder, torture, and selling families apart for profit. Um, Grant was a drunk and a butcher, which is just false. He's the greatest commander of the war. Um, Reconstruction was evil, which is just not true. It was a real attempt to create a biracial society at the top of that Lee was the finest man who ever lived. So I grew up believing these myths, and I, re- I was at West Point, and I really, you have to understand, I've been in the Army for a while. So my identity was no longer Virginia gentleman, but it was now Army officer. And as I was looking at West Point, I walked by, um, and you've been there, uh, Eisenhower Barracks, and then by Pershing Barracks, and then by Grant Hall, and then to Lee Barracks. And I, I, and I saw this sign for Lee, and I wondered, that was what I wondered. Why are there so many things named after Lee here? And I ran around campus post looking and I found more than a dozen things. And that started my, my, my research into why there were so many things about that. And that history changed me. The evidence changed me. The facts changed me. And Lee, not only uh, was Lee a traitor to his country because he chose, uh, he chose the, uh, to, to fight against America, but but the myth that he was uh, this this wonderful noble gentleman who he didn't really like slavery this had nothing to do with him he he, he actually owned slaves didn't he yeah the idea that he did that this kindly generally bull hockey uh, first he was he, he got most of his money from enslaved people and, and inherited them soon after he graduated from West Point and hired them out throughout his entire life uh, to gaining money. And then the second thing was he married into the Custis family, the, the adopted grandson of, of George Washington, and inherited that when, when his father-in-law died and uh, took slaves with him, enslaved people, every assignment he went to. And then when he was at Arlington, he ran that for two and a half years rather than being with his regiment in Texas, where he should have been. Uh, he was running these, I, I like to call them enslaved labor farms, not plantations. And he ran them and made money and split apart every family. His father-in-law kept these families together. And he broke every family apart but one. And he ordered enslaved servants whipped when they were returned. They thought they were free. And he ordered them whipped and salt water poured on them. And he fought for slavery uh, because he believed so thoroughly in enslavement and in human enslavement as a social system for the South. So this was a cruel slave owner, uh, someone who believed in slavery. And so therefore, he fought for slavery. One more, and then, and then I want to turn it over to James. You went to Washington and Lee in Lexington, Virginia. It was Washington College. He became the president uh, after the war against uh, against the United States, and he they later named the school for him. But you're right; it was not only named for him. He was worshipped literally like a god at WNL. Yeah. So I, I mean, I think the best way to do this is to describe the the, the scene of my commissioning ceremony. So I, I went to WNL to be a Virginia gentleman, and when I got there, um, you know, we had our first meeting in Lee Chapel. But you got to understand what Lee Chapel is. 
Most you and we've been in churches before. Churches have pulpits and they have a place where the hymnal is done and they have a cross or they uh, they have all the iconography of whatever that religion is. And in this case for Virginia would have been a would have been a Christian religion. Well, in Lee Chapel there is an apse, a sanctuary of the chapel, and there's an altar, a, a, a marble white altar, and lying on top of the altar is, in fact, Robert E. Lee in repose, in Confederate uniform, not dead, but rather asleep, ready to rise up. So his boots are uncovered, uh, he's got his hand over his heart, and his left hand is on his sword, ready to rise up to fight for his people, the white people of the South, for his cause, the cause of a slave society. And when I was there, to get my commission, I still have a picture of me um, next to the portrait. As I'm walking up on stage to go get my commission, I'm standing next to a portrait of Robert E. Lee in Confederate gray. And then I go and get my commission, shake hands with some general or colonel, whoever he was, I don't remember. And it was, and I'm surrounded by Confederate flags. Then I go back and sit down. I raise my right hand and I take the oath of office. Now that's the oath that every single person in the federal government takes, except the president, who's that's in the Constitution. And that oath that I took then, that we all take in the federal government, um, is was written in 1862 as an anti-Confederate oath. So if you think, if you think of that oath that has said, it says, um, uh, I, I will protect, uh, support and defend the Constitution against all enemies foreign and domestic, domestic, guess what? Those were, were Confederates. If it says no purpose of evasion, that's about the Confederates. So in that Lee Chapel, that worship, we call him St. Bob, actually worship there. And then down and near his crypt is Traveler, who is buried right next to him. And, uh, and, and his Traveler, horse. his horse, Traveler, his war steed. Yeah, thank you. His war steed buried right there. Um, and people still leave apples and carrots. And they, and they, to this day, Al, they leave pennies face down on Lincoln, on, on Traveler's uh, grave so that Lincoln's face won't be visible to Lee. And also so that Lincoln will have to kiss Traveler's ass. So this is the, the, the site of the, it's the shrine of the lost cause where you worship Robert E. Lee as the saint of the South. Wow, James. So, uh, well, first of all, very excited uh, uh, about this and Al has his journey and of course I have my own journey. But, but first of all, my daughter graduated from Episcopal High. <laughs> oh, wow. School. So And yeah. Al grew up right next to Woodbury Forest. So the three of us are... Uh, Oh, pretty familiar right. with the EA I knew that when you said Woodbury Orange, Forest, I know Woodbury right. Forest. I went there uh, very often. One of my very good friends teaches there now. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm, you know, 76 and grew up in the South, and I went to LSU, and I took a lot of history courses. And I, I was very fortunate because the LSU history department in the early 60s hated the lost cause. Just, just couldn't stand them. And they were in contrast to something called the Dunning School at Columbia, which probably did as much as anybody not named Jubal earlier, Douglas Southall <laughs> Freeman, to perpetrate this. Or Margaret Mitchell. <laughs> Margaret Mitchell, yeah, let's, put, yeah. let's not forget her. We can, we can, <laughs> this whole thing. And Williams used to tell us this story about that little girl came home from Sunday school in the 1930s in Richmond and said, Mom, I forget, was General Lee in the Old Testament or the New Testament? <laughs> he is the and Testament. He is, yeah. He, 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 spans, he spans them both. But let, let's talk about how powerful this myth was. And talk, talk to us a little bit about how it came about. And it was so powerful in the mid-'80s in reading the book, the, the 
maybe justifiably considered one of the preeminent Civil War historians who's still living, uh, most influential, was James McPherson at Princeton, and he was still buying into this crap in the mid-'80s. And there's some evidence Ken Burns had bought into, not totally, but had flirted with it in in his, what I I find, moving and compelling series that probably needs to be slightly reworked. But talk a little bit about that myth and how it took hold with so many people and how people got seduced into it. Well, I think one thing to remember, James, is that culture is more powerful than history. And stories are more powerful than history. Because, and so what, 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 that, that's what, I mean, that's what we got to remember here. This is a powerful story um, and a story with a real purpose. So first, the, yeah, just that the South went to war to protect and expand slavery. And it didn't just lose by a little bit. It was destroyed. I mean, Lee's army was destroyed, not defeated. The South lost 60% of its wealth, uh, much of it in enslaved labor, but everything was destroyed. And how do you deal with going to, to war and to deal with this catastrophic loss? On the one hand, and on the other hand, what you most feared out of this war was, 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 uh, was uh, black uh, men equal to white men. That was, the mo- that was the fear that drove them to war. And not only, th- and that's exactly what, what turned out to be. So these white supremacists had to figure out how to deal with that past. And it wasn't, it wasn't just the men. And so they create this series of myths, but this is done for a, first it's done for a real purpose. And that is, it is done to support a white supremacist society. And the pillars of that are, are, are segregation laws, are lynching, our black disenfranchisement, our Confederate monuments, and this lost cause myth form the pillars of a white supremacist society. So it's done for political power, but the way it's it's created is through every aspect of society. So one good way of talking about how it works is the United Daughters of the Confederacy, a neo-Confederate group um, that that started in the late 1890s, started in the 1890s, and uh, and they they become incredibly powerful. And one of the things they do, and you can still go to their website to this day and look up the children of the Confederacy. Their most important thing was to create textbooks um, and to ensure that that Southern children, black and white, only got the true history. And that true history was making sure that it was the lost cause myth, not this stuff about slavery. So and they, they inserted themselves into every single part of Southern society to ensure that this singular way of looking was dominant. And they would run professors out of town who weren't doing that. And they would burn books that didn't have the correct way of looking at things. And, and then so that by the time that I grew up and even my dad grew up, this was the pervasive way of thinking in the South. And the, the people that did the segregationist movement in the 50s and 60s all sucked at, you know, sucked at this at the teat of, of the lost cause and became these segregationists. So it, it, it infused every aspect of white Southern society, and of course, black uh, Southerners, and this is something we, that always uh, chaps me, is that when we say Southern society, we, we, we forget that 40% of the South are black Americans. And, and, and what, what, we, what we do is we talk about that white Moonlight and Magnolia school, whether it's Birth of a Nation, the movie there, or Gone with the Wind, all of it reinforced this, uh, this lost cause myth, and with it, a white supremacist society. Uh, Absolutely. And but let's just jump forward. 2017 was not that long ago. I know you had some help here. When New Orleans took down the Confederate monuments, and but the 
that was really Lee was the sort of focal point. I mean, the angst and the anger and the, the, the screaming and the yelling and the pain, you couldn't believe it. You couldn't believe it. He had, Lee had never been to New Orleans in his life. New Orleans was under Confederate rule for a short period of time. And uh, literally, they had to have security guards. They had to, God knows what all they had to do. And of course, now everybody, even the, the, the you know, elite whites, are, thank God we took that damn thing down, James. We'd have more trouble down here than you knew what to do with. But we forget how recent, you know, this, this crap had a hold on people. Oh, it, it, it's it's so recent. So, you know, in, in uh, 2015, I did a video on uh, the cause of the Civil War in my blue uniform. And, uh, it, you know, video, and, and it's more powerful than the, the written word. Uh, you know, Gore Vidal once said, he who screens the history makes the history. And this thing came out and it went viral. And I was investigated by the Army for political speech. Uh, the nation, left-wing nation, said I was a propagandist for the Army. Uh, Stars and Stripes said I was too close to a political organization. Um, I got death threats to my West Point email address for saying the Civil War was about slavery. And the reason is, it goes back to what I said, culture is more powerful than history. And white Southern culture grew up with these lies. And these lies have formed the, the legend of people's lives. And when, when you do that, you go after the people's identity. And I guarantee you, I found out personally, when you attack people's myths and their identity, they will react and sometimes violently. So what, and the same thing that you saw in New Orleans when Mayor Mitch did these things is that, I mean, he had to take them down in the middle of the night and somebody's car was, was burned oh. because you're going after people's myths and their identity. History is dangerous because of that. Now, it's also why it's so damn much fun to write about and to talk about is because right. it, it, you have to go inside and you make people uncomfortable. Now, listen, for us white folk, it's uncomfortable, but come on, is this uncomfortable? Anything like growing up in enslavement, you know, which is where, where everyone, you knew that your kids and your kids' kids would live in this horror or the Jim Crow South? No, this is just a little bit uncomfortable. And, and we can handle uncomfortable. Come on, people. We can do this. So uh, I'm going to turn back over to I'll just make one point. My boy. It, there's an economic historian at Cornell by the name of Edward Baptist, just like the mm -hmm. Southern Baptist. And he, he wrote a book about the economics of slavery. And in 1860, the single most valuable commodity in the United States, more than land, more than, than steel or whatever, agriculture, were human beings. They, they were just kind of one, of one of the great parts of the myth was, well, if the North would have just played along for a little bit, it, it would have all been okay. That, that's so much, that, that's bullshit at the highest level you can imagine. They were not going to remotely give up no. the most valuable thing they owned. No, and in fact, you know, in, in 1860, enslaved people were at an all-time high. And one of the reasons they go to war is because they have to keep that market alive. And if they have it just – so if the market is only going to be in the current southern states, then one, you're, you're looking at Mississippi being – it was 55 percent uh, black pe enslaved people. It could be 70, 80 percent. And then they start worrying about Haiti. You know, Tucson Overture, where 
where the the the, the black uh, right. people in that sure. on that island slaughtered the white people. So they're worried about that on the one hand. Mm-hmm. And if their markets if their markets go away, if they don't continue to grow the markets, what are they going to do? All the people in Virginia that are selling enslaved people lose their market value. They need to expand, and they want to expand. They want to expand into Cuba. They want to expand into Latin America. They want to expand to Puerto Rico oh, yeah. and, and, and even into South America. So, you know, the, uh, this is an expansionist ideology that is a race-based mm-hmm. ideology. It's terrible. And they yeah, have covered this. <laughs> it, 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 ask Kansas, right. And yeah. the, they're, I mean, there's only one thing that's going to make people fight over this much. And that is the, that is the ideology of enslavement. And it's also the economics of it. And it, they're not going to fight over tariffs. People never fought over tariffs. Come on. But, but they are willing to fight and die to preserve this morally repugnant institution of slavery. And they do by the hundreds of thousands. General, let's talk a little bit about the military side of this. Um, again, I want to say my grandmother was a member of the UDC. She was a marvelous woman. I think she was more a victim than – I know she was more a victim than a perpetrator. But I remember those summer conversations with my great uncles and others, and they uh, worshipped Lee, and they talked about the dashing cavalry officer, Jeb Stewart, and how Stonewall Jackson had lived, the outcome might have been different. But until I took a course on the Civil War in college – I really never heard of General James Longstreet, perhaps the best Southern commander. He was the scapegoat of the lost cause. They, <clears throat> they, they incorrectly blamed him for Lee's blunder at Gettysburg and uh, for losing the war. Yes, James Longstreet. I mean, uh, Lee's old, Lee's old warhorse. Um, and I, I have this great picture in my mind of, of Longstreet when he is he comes to West Point in 1902 for the West Point uh, Centennial. And he is the one of the few Southerners. They invite a couple of Southerners along with E.P. Alexander, and he's there in the audience um, with these wispy white sideburns. Uh, I mean, like almost like eight, 10, 12 inches with an ear trumpet because he's so deaf. But he was the greatest civil. I think he may have been the greatest commander on the Confederate side. And uh, and and yet, how many statues are there to him in the South? Well, I know the answer to it. It's zero. And why is it zero? It's because he. His good friend was Grant. After the war, he becomes a Republican. Remember, the South um, becomes a one-party racial police state uh, led by Democrats. Um, and and Longstreet is with the Republicans and, and is there at the Battle of Liberty Place, you know, as James knows so well with that awful statue that went up in the 1870s oh, to this. Oh. I mean, it's the worst – one of the worst statues – Around, I've got one more, even worse than that. But that that was a terrible one. But he's fighting for a biracial society, and so therefore, as I think it's Daniel Hill says about him, he is our he is our local scalawag. And a scalawag is someone who is from the South that fights for racial equality, that fights against the white Southern interests, the planter class interests that are trying for to create debt peonage for for black people. So, and there is one, believe it or not, there's one there is one statue for Longstreet now, and it's at Gettysburg. It's Gettysburg, terrible. Right. Have you seen it? It's it is terrible. a terrible statue. Terrible statue. It and it went up in the 1990s, really, as reaction to the movie Gettysburg. Killer Angels, that book, actually makes him look much better. Uh, but 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 Longstreet was was absolutely blamed by 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 James, my our, our favorite villain, jubilantly, as being the reason for his defeat. No. Lee lost at Gettysburg because he he was a he, he did stupid things and ordered frontal assaults. He, he was he was he's the goat of uh, of Gettysburg, not Longstreet. So I think that's a great point that, and that's why we ought to understand the purpose of these monuments are really um, to enforce white supremacy. 
Well, I, you know, I, um, I, he, he went to, my wife went to the same high school in Augusta, Georgia, Richmond Academy. I don't even think there's anything to General Longstreet there. But you mentioned, I think one of the nice things that's occurred in the last uh, decade or so is the resurrection, the revival of the real reputation of, of Ulysses S. Grant. Ron Chernow and others played a role in that. He really was a better general than Lee, wasn't he? Oh, uh, 20 times better. He was better strategically. He was better operationally. He's better tactically. Remember, he captures three armies, the one at uh, Fort Henry and Donaldson. He captures the one at Vicksburg and then at Appomattox. And uh, he understands how that, that he has to hit Lee uh, and the Confederates simultaneously across the width and depth of the battle space. Um, and then, and, and, and by the way, he, he brings black soldiers in on the, on the fight. Um, and he doesn't commit war crimes. Lee, Lee commit, commits war crimes. His, his soldiers kidnap black, um, free black people on the trip north into, uh, Gettysburg. Um, his troops slaughter black POWs at the Battle of the Crater. Grant, uh, he makes a couple of mistakes at Cold Harbor, you know, and other places, but he really understands, uh, understands this war like no one else. And the other thing about him is, there's no one that writes more clearly about war and, and giving orders than does Grant. He sees it, he's, in, he's, he's calm, and he executes with ferocity. I mean, he, I think he's the greatest soldier ever to wear Army blue. Wow, that's something. I, One more thing, I, and let me turn it over to James. I have a theory. I want to see what you think of this. This was that experience of spending the summers in Orange, Virginia, and the rest of the time in the North. And, and, and this is in the 50s. Um, General, in, in, in the North, you never talked about the Civil War. If you talked about any war back then, it was World War II, and maybe <clears throat> there'd be occasional mention, but really rare. In Orange, Virginia, I don't think there was a day where you didn't talk about the war between the states, as they call it, or whatever. I think part of the reason the lost cause succeeded so much is because there wasn't there wasn't a pushback. It didn't matter to people uh, elsewhere, and there was just this incredible intensity uh, <clears throat> in the South and elsewhere. It's almost like the gun the gun issue today. Well, yeah, and, and, and the other thing is that um, I mean, the South really works at this over and over. It doesn't work initially. I mean, the the Civil War veterans aren't having any of this stuff. You know, I mean, they're saying, listen, this war was fought as as one of the uh, people that dedicated a monument at West Point said in 1897. The war was fought to free a race and weld a nation. They were very clear on this. But as the time goes on, and and Jim Crow becomes more um, uh, more across the country. This idea of what the Civil War is about, and, and with things like the Dunning School, it becomes a nationwide event. Plus, remember, because the South is a one-party racial police state, for Roosevelt and others to get uh, things through Congress, they have to appease these white segregationists like Theodore Bilbo from, from Mississippi. And, and that means that, you know, for instance, Social Security Act, uh, no black people are, are covered under that. And so it's the politics now become part of this because there are no there's no two party system in the South. And and that 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 entire way, it becomes an entire system. So FDR is the one that dedicates the Lee Monument in Dallas in 1936, talking about Lee being the greatest gentleman in American history. So it it becomes it becomes a, a nationwide phenomenon that we are only now really beginning uh, to to find the facts, the evidence. And I would say the truth. James. Yeah. Uh, so look at the percentage of vote that FDR got in South Carolina in 1932 and 1936, and you'll see there was a political reason. Uh, I want to address two things, and then I want to get to, to, to Al's list. The first thing that uh, I want to talk about is 
General Sherman, who I have a particular affection to because he started at LSU. His first, he was our first president. And, of course, you hear all this about, you know, how terrible Sherman was in Georgia. Well, we, we, can, we can talk about that. But Lee wasn't, Lee, when he marched into Pennsylvania, he was, his army was hardly a, a, a picture of discipline and, and, and restraint or anything else. But we never hear about what Lee did in Pennsylvania. We only hear about what Sherman did in Georgia and South Carolina, which I think was strategically brilliant. But we'll it totally right. was brilliant. I mean, he he took the hard hand of war. This was policy because the only way that the South was going, the white South was going to give up was if they they showed that they could not uh, stop the, 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 the U.S. forces. By the way, I just want to say, I don't say the Union forces, the United States Army, my army, that marched through Georgia and did and did it brilliantly. And Sheridan did the same thing to the Shenandoah Valley. The only way this, the, this, the white South was going to give up is if they were shown that they could not stop the United States from going wherever they wanted to, whenever they wanted to, and destroying whatever they, they wanted to. But, but again, almost no rape, almost no civilian murders. It was a directed policy. When and it's some of that is the same way going into the into 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 both Maryland the both and and into um, uh, Pennsylvania when Lee's army does it first Lee kind of says listen don't steal but I mean he kind of wink wink nod nod and it, and there's there a rapacious group going into into both into Maryland and into uh, uh, Pennsylvania and then again they kidnap black people and they are by the way bringing enslaved people into Pennsylvania because they are their workers you never hear about all the enslaved people that Lee is bringing with him wherever he is to support his army so you know we have given him a pass um, and, and listen nobody gets a buy from history. And Lee has gotten a buy from history, and we have got to correct that. I'm hoping I can correct that to some degree, but other historians have to correct this. And Sherman is the great hero. Listen, as we know, if it hadn't been for Sherman taking Atlanta when he did, uh, uh, just a couple of months or a month before the election, the November election, Abraham Lincoln wouldn't have been elected. And we may be, we, we in, in the horror of that, I don't know what it would have been. George McClellan would have been elected, and that to, to our everlasting detriment. So, I mean, Sherman is a hero of mine, too. But one story about Sherman, he's going, uh, when he's commanding general of the army, comes back to West Point, he says, I want to go inspect this room. So goes up and inspects the room, moves the bunk out of the way, goes down, reaches and finds a brick in the wall, removes a brick, reaches behind the brick, brings, it out, brings out a whiskey bottle. It looks at the cadet and says, cadet? That is not the same whiskey bottle that I left there when I was a cadet. <laughs> oh, but you're wow. right. It, in, uh, you know, I think something like 65% of the soldiers in the Army of the United States voted for Abraham Lincoln in 19. In and he sends them home to do it. I mean, it's the first time troops have, have, have voted, I think, anywhere in the, on the planet. And, and they ended up in almost all states, I mean, except New Jersey, actually giving them leave to go home and vote. I mean, it was, they, they voted for him in huge numbers because he was winning. And because the last thing they wanted to do after all that blood is to then lose the war. I mean, the soldiers understood what the, and they understood the consequences of what this war was about. I mean, the most important consequences for really any war we've ever fought. I mean, maybe the American Revolution War, but I mean, this was, this was about big event, big ideas, important things. And they had seen what the South looked like and they had seen what slavery was doing. And by 1864, they wanted to destroy that system. Excuse me, General. Excuse me, Albert. But we got a special guest uh, who has called into our show. 
Uh, let me introduce the great former mayor of the great city of New Orleans, Mitch Landrieu, who has some experience with with, uh, with the general, and we can discuss we can discuss that. Hey, James, how are you? Uh, I want you to talk to the uh, to General Ty a little bit about how uh, we were just we were talking a little bit earlier about the Confederate monuments in New Orleans and the, the angst and everything that it went through. So I, I'm just hoping that maybe you and the general could have a little back and forth and enlighten our listeners here. Well, I appreciate it. And James, thanks for having me, Al. It's great to, it's, it's great to be on with you as well. And Ty, thank General, you thank you so much. Uh, I, you know, when I um, began to think about taking down the monuments, I wanted to make sure that the limited knowledge that I had about history was correct. And Ty was one of the folks um, that I leaned on very, very heavily. Of course, you know, his position uh, at West Point gave him a, a very high level of gravitas. And he he spoke with fantastic amount of courage in a space that was very unwelcoming to the message that he was trying to teach, you know, the future leaders of America uh, about war and about peace. And he was very um, clear in the message that he gave. And and, I, I, and I, as I was thinking about the issue of the monuments in New Orleans, it occurred to me that a lot of white people in the South treat the Civil War like it's an LSU-Alabama football game. You know, like it's a, the X's and the O's. And, you know, wasn't that quarterback good? And, you know, Lee versus Sherman. And who was the better? Or was it Grant? And I just want to keep reminding people, the more we learn about this and the more we take time to think back about what it is that we really did to each other, that 700,000 people um, were killed because some folks in the South who were never part of a formal governmental entity tried to destroy the United States of America for the cause of enslaving our fellow Americans. That's what the Civil War was about. History has rendered its verdict on that. And I think that for some very strange reason, it's very hard for some people in the South, most of whom are white, to just see that, understand it, and to know it. And, you know, Ty really helped me begin to understand a little bit more about the the depth of our denial, um, notwithstanding the cornerstone speech that was given, notwithstanding how aggressive Jefferson Davis was about it and how overt Lee was about it. And so from my perspective, the fact that he was a great general, um, maybe, arguably, you know, some people who love him and, and adore him actually makes what he did worse. It's like standing up, you know, somebody that tried to destroy your country and honoring them, uh, even given the fact that they lost. And so it seemed to be upside down to me. So when we began to really think about uh, the monuments, it was in the context of trying to rebuild the city of New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina had damaged 500,000 homes, destroyed 250,000, 1,800 people were dead. And of course, the city was on the verge of bankruptcy. We had gone through Katrina, Rita, Ike, Gustav, the National Recession. I took office three weeks after the BP oil spill decimated our coast and our fishermen and our fisheries and the oil and gas industry. And as we were rebuilding back the city, one of the things that I kept thinking about was what are we, what are we building back? Are we going to put it back like it was? In other words, on August 28th, you know, um, the night before Katrina hit, was the city of New Orleans perfect? I mean, had we gotten it right or had we gotten it wrong? So it, it, it required us to do some soul searching. And of course, as we did that 
and we began to prepare for our 300th anniversary, which was eight years later, we began to think about the physical space of the city and whether or not what we chose to remember and how we chose to remember it and who we chose to revere actually reflected who the city of New Orleans uh, was or who the city of New Orleans wanted to be. And it got to pretty clear pretty fast after Wynton Marcellus really woke me up to this issue that those Confederate monuments had been placed there as a, as a matter of propaganda well after the Civil War ended to send a message to the African-Americans, um, which were over half of the population at the time, that notwithstanding the fact that the United States had won the war and pushed back this insurrection, that they nevertheless were still going to be second-class citizens for the rest of their lives. And so as I sat as a white mayor in a majority black city and we were rebuilding our public spaces, it just seemed completely hypocritical and a lie to allow those monuments to stand and to revere rather than to appropriately remember um, how damaging the Civil War was to not only the people in the South, not only African-Americans, but the nation as a whole. And and I'll end here. And as a matter of course, um, it has been this nation's Achilles heel to refuse to acknowledge the incredible damage and how wrong we were um, because it stops us from envisioning how great we can actually still be if we ever decide to get it right um, and start lifting people up rather than pushing them down. And think about the uh, intellectual capital uh, and raw material and the product um, and just the human connection we lost when we forced African-Americans to leave the South and what we've lost because of it and consequently, what we have to gain if we ever made sure that everybody here had a right and an opportunity uh, and a consequent obligation and responsibility to come back home would blow the rest of the country away. And I have a chip on my shoulder because I'm a southerner and I'm, I, I, I got educated uh, at least where people think is up north, which is in Washington, D.C., where they think folks in the <laughs> south don't know how to read and write, you know, or don't have shoes. I happen to think that we would outpace every other place in the country if we ever got to act together. And this idea of a new South is not just something that can't be realized. We're actually on our way to it if we just get the hell out of the way. Uh, and folks like in Georgia right now who are actually trying to go backwards, I just think the people in this country don't want to go there. And unless and until we reckon with these issues, and Lee is a central part of it, and the Civil War is, and we get past it and acknowledge that it was wrongheaded um, and that it was damaging, we're going to have a hard time getting to that future that I think is going to be better for all of us. Oh, General, that was amazing, amazing. So, so it must be nice, uh, General, to have some scholarship and be part of something that was so important. What, what, what Mayor Mitch did, and you know, be, most scholars, you know, see their work, and other scholars read it, and hopefully it gets assigned, you know, in some college courses or something. But I mean, I think your scholarship, and I, I'm sure the mayor will agree with me, helped have a profound impact on people's lives. Well, that that is too kind. I bet Mayor Mayor Mitch was he was so. I mean, the bravery that you know. I remember when this was happening, and and I was writing about this stuff. But there's a hell of a difference between writing about it and actually doing it. And that's why I love politicians. Politicians do stuff. Our best politicians get stuff done. And uh, and 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 when he's when that when I saw him give that speech, and I saw those statues come down, I got to tell you, I mean, I choked up. It was to see my country. Uh, through the eyes of New Orleans, doing what it could do, what it should do, what it did. Oh, my God. Still gets me every time I think about it. Well, Ty, hang, hang on a second. You, you selling yourself short. Um, you know, without giving you, you guys, th making you think too many bad things about me, James will appreciate this. I'm a politician. 
Um, and in 2014, so we didn't take these down to 2017. Ty, and you gave, I don't know when you first gave your lecture that was, that was recorded. Do you remember when that was? Uh, 2015. Okay. So in 2014, my, my mind got woken up to this by Wynton Marcellus, who was a, just a childhood friend of mine. And we were talking about a bunch of stuff, and I was asking him to help me think through um, big things about the anniversary of the city of New Orleans that was coming up three years ahead of us in 2018. So we're four years earlier and went and puts the monuments on my mind. And now the first thing I thought about, James, this will ring true to you. I said, man, I'm not doing that. That's a war. I mean, that's a whole nother war. And that's an ass whipping that is just, you know, do I want to take it? And so, you know, the first thing I thought, like every politician does about, well, how can I evade that? Do I really want to do that? Is it really interesting? I wasn't even thinking about that. I got a lot of other stuff to do. But went and asked me a question as a friend. He said, well, you think about it. So I started thinking about it. And I wanted to make sure that my, my head was right. So I called people who know more stuff than me. Walter Isaacson. I called Ken Burns. I called a lot of other historians. And then as, as I began to, to understand more deeply, it began to really bother me that it took us so me so long to see this, but I still wasn't sure about whether I could do it and not do it. And I needed historical framework and background. But Ty, when I, when I saw your talk that you gave, that is the thing that gave me the complete and total strength to say, I know now that my view of history based on what your work was, was more right. So you were a critical part in my thinking. And then as as we kind of moved into it, when Dylan Roof walked into Mother Emanuel and killed our fellow Americans who were praying, that is the moment when I said I took I took what Walt would would I learned from the historians what Winton had told me. I took that piece of information and that terrible day, and then your work, and and I pulled the trigger. And had any one of those things not been there. I'm not sure that that I would have done what I did. And so I, I encourage the reason I'm telling you this is, number one, I want to thank you for, for being courageous. I want to thank you for your intellect and for your and your background. But I think people out there don't realize that that how, what an impact their work has on folks that are actually in other spheres. And you may not even know they're looking at your stuff. And I want to encourage people to continue to be courageous in the spaces that they're in, whether they're a politician or whether they're an academic whether they're a general, whatever it might be, even though you might be in the minority, even though people are still trying to shut you down, if you think it's right, somebody's listening. And I've said many, many times that truth cuts across history and it cuts across geography. In other words, there are things that that uh, when I gave that speech, that speech was actually a specific retort to a speech that uh, Charles Fenner gave in 1890s on the day that they put that monument up. So if you go back and look at the history books now, there's a speech that Mitch gave in 2017, and there's one that Fenner gave in 1890, and it is a retort to that speech. And the time that passed in between, I don't want to say wasn't consequential, but it's important to have bookends. And one of the reasons I was able to give that speech, Ty, is because of the work that you did. Well, I thank you, Ms. Mayor. I mean, that is, I, 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 I'm just blown away by that. I think one of the things that you did so well, though, and what, one of the things that we have to do is tell stories. So just then, you're telling another story. You're, the book ends. You're telling a beginning and an end. And the only thing that's going to be able, and I think what you did so well, uh, is to tell a story to counter this lost cause narrative, this idea that the, that the war wasn't about slavery. We need better stories. And I think that's what you've been able to do is to tell better stories. And James tells great stories. And Al tells great stories. But we need those better stories to, uh, I always think of this lost cause and uh, myth as sort of like kudzu. You know, it, it chokes out anything else 
that uh, and other stories that can come out. And I think by I mean, it just takes all of us working really hard to try to to try to get that kudzu out of there. So we have the great stories um, that, that that the mayor and others have been able to. Uh, uh, to change our narrative, change the way we think. Right. Well, the na- listen, if I might, James, I don't mean to take up your whole your whole uh, program, no, but no, no, if you think about, I want you to think about narrative narrative here for per second. If we use the word, um, you know, in the south, uh, all up and down the river, we have these buildings that we call plantations. They're these beautiful physical structures, and people go to them, and they have weddings, and they have beautiful things, you know. But if if you're an African American and you walk into one of those plantations, you ca- you see a forced labor camp. You don't see a plantation. You see a forced labor camp. Like if you're watching Gone with the Wind now, people go, well, wait a minute. It depends on – it just reminds me of the story about when your grandpa went duck hunting and he came out of the woods with a bunch of duck and, and the little, his grandson says, Papa, how was your duck hunt? And he says, well, it depends. And he said, well, Papa, it depends on what? He says, well, whether or not you're the hunter or whether you're the duck. Yeah. And so the perspective from which you look at things are critically important. So when you know we say the word slavery, we just gloss over it. When you think about the fact that we separated that, – that no, A, human beings were in bondage. B, we separated people, husbands and wives and mothers from their children. People were raped. People were killed. People were hung. I mean when you start thinking about it like that and you make people look at those images – All right. When you think about the insurrection at the Capitol that happened on January 6th and a bunch of white people go, oh, my God, I can't believe that that happened in America. Ty, you know, as well as I do, I know that there have been innumerable numbers of insurrections in the United States that are identical to that, that have been going on. The Colfax insurrection happened. The Liberty, the, the Liberty Monument is up in New Orleans, revering the people who who incited an insurrection against the biracial government. In, in New Orleans. And yet we put up a monument not to honor the people who were killed trying to defend, you know, the government, but the people who actually were trying to attack it. So what happened on January 6th actually fits into a consistent pattern of behavior for people who were afraid that their rights were being taken away from them. And they hit main people. When you begin to use that narrative, then all of a sudden people start to think, well, wait a minute. Did I really, did anybody I know participate in that? Did I somehow through my ignorance lift that up? Do I think that's the right thing to do? And now people are thinking about it and they're beginning to understand the institutional designs that have gotten us where we are, like redlining or letting, not not putting black people in the Social Security Act, not letting African-Americans participate in the GI Bill, all kinds of those things that have resulted in the kind of difficulties and the, and the disparities that we have today. And I'm hoping that we're going to get to a better place because we ought to be just generally speaking, as President Clinton said, you know, there's a lot of distance between the cup and the lip. Um, we have to close that distance and we have to make sure that we lift people up rather than push them down. And if we do that and invite more people into this space because they're coming, demographic changes are here. We better make sure that everybody's on the playing field and everybody's got opportunity, responsibility, or we're going to be sucking wind. I agree. I, and I, you know, I use the same language in my book. I call those, I don't call them plantations like Scarlet sitting on the, uh, on the uh, sipping iced tea as the wind whispers through the magnolias. Uh, I call them enslaved labor camps. And uh, I remember I went to a wedding on one of those maybe, I don't know, five, 10 years ago. And it, as I was walking through it, it was like, it was like being a site of mass atrocities. And, and I mean, that's the way I look at that now. And every, I can't not look at slavery thinking about rape, torture, mutilation, selling families apart for profit. And our language, when our language changes, 
the way we view it changes. So if it's enslaved labor farm or insurrection or, um, uh, you know, traitors, uh, all these these different words can help us create that different narrative, which I think you've done so well. And and I agree. I mean, we, we are the United States of America. There's nothing we can't do. There's nothing we haven't done. Um, but we got to get our history right before we can get we can we can make it uh, to that next level. Yeah, I'll, I'll make two extra points. Number one, uh, on the issue of plantations, John Cummings uh, has purchased a, a plantation called the Whitney Plantation. He's curated that plantation from the perspective of individuals um, that were enslaved. And it's a wholly different experience from going to, for example, another plantation where they may have uh, weddings and things like that. When you look at it again from that perspective, taking the same, a, a similar kind of property turning it around, thinking about it from a different perspective. If you happen, if you're white and you happen to walk into one of those nice plantation homes at a tourist attractions and you're with an African-American friend and you stand side by side and you both take a moment to say, how are we both looking at this? You'll get a sense of what it is that we're trying to talk about. The other thing that is in the city of New Orleans itself, James, where the Bourbon Orleans is, in that particular spot, um, more individuals were sold into slavery than any place else. And to my knowledge, they may have something there now. We never really we never really noted that. So the monuments were not only an, an aggressive presence of something that was a, that only represented a small portion of four years of our universe. What we chose not to remember, what we chose not to revere, what we chose not to lift up is also part of our history. But that's what we've also chose to ignore. And so, I, you know, I got in a fight with all these kind of so-called historians that basically said it was their right to preserve our history. I, I kind of accuse them and still do of historic malfeasance, that they've actually done a really poor job of te- teaching us about our history. As my mother said, son, I never learned about any of that stuff. That's not what they taught us about the Civil War. That's not what they taught us about anything. And so we have this real blind spot in this country. Now, I have enough faith in human beings in this country um, white and black, that if we really take have the courage to look back and really understand and really know and see our whole truth, nothing but the truth, in its, in its complete and total honesty um, and transparency just stripped down, that the way the American soul works is at the end of the day, through all of our struggles, to lift up and decide to go forward rather than backwards. And I know that we're having this massive historic struggle, and I happen to believe all of these things are tied together. I don't think the insurrection on January 6th is is too disconnected or alienated from these monuments. It's the idea that allowed the monuments to stand, that allowed that insurrection to take place. It's still with us today. And and you can see it happening now in Georgia, where it's it's leaked into um, really kind of rolling back all of these voting protections that used to exist. Now they want to take them away. It's all a part of this strain that's all recognizable to us. And I think in America, we have to stand in the breach here. Because I think the idea of America is at risk, and it's the idea that's really simple. All of us come to the table of democracy as equals, period. That's who we are. None of us are better than anybody else because of the color of our skin. And that is not the way that we've acted historically. Not all of us, but certainly some of it. And that has allowed itself into some of our laws, our rules, our regulations that have pushed people back rather than lifting them up. And we're all the worse for it, which means that we can all be much better if we would quit doing that stuff and get on with it. Uh, just want want to make a point here about Louisiana and slavery. Most people do not realize this, but the song "My Old Kentucky Home," which was written by Stephen by a white guy, the song was written from the perspective of a slave in Kentucky that was sold to Louisiana, and he was lamenting because it, it like anything else, 
that, that, you know, it, it's a universal horrible thing, but there's some horror. The, the horror of slavery in Louisiana was just unbelievable. I mean, the climate, you know, the sugarcane, everything, but just, just how the power of myth. And I, I, you go to Kentucky Derby, and I love horse racing, and had all these white women in big, colorful hats and <laughs> everything, and they're singing a song that was written from the vantage point of, of a slave. It's just that's how the power of myth just ingrains itself in the country. Just yeah, no question about it. If those same people that were watching the Kentucky Derby knew who was in the back of the house, you know, making sure those horses got walked and were washed and were worn, and, you know, their positions on immigration might be a little different, too, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Well, Mayor, thank you so much for coming on. And I think what, what this does is just the bind that shows that scholarship and, you know, the ability to communicate and having a position like being the head of the history department at the United States Military Academy, you actually can make a difference in people's lives. And, General, that, that clearly applies to you in this book. Of course, Mayor, it, it clearly applies to you and the multitude of things you've done for our great city. But the fact that the two of you were able to in some way collaborate on this, I, I think is an amazing thing. And we're so grateful that you came on our show. James, can I, can I just add one more, one, more, one more frame to this and why Ty was so helpful? You know, you have this uh, kind of this thing called to toxic masculinity and this, um, these folks stealing this term patriot. Like you're not a patriot if for some reason you don't support, you know, X this, X that. And somehow when we took these monuments down, we were doing something against, you know, the, the folks that fought in the armed services. What Ty helped me understand and gave me, you know, the backup to do is say, here's a guy that's a general. And 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 he is stating clearly, which I, I don't understand how most people in the military don't get, that these guys in the Civil War were fighting to destroy the country. They may they may have been warriors in the Civil War. Clearly, each each and every person that fought in that war was a warrior. But the folks that fought on the side of the Confederacy were not patriots. They weren't defending the United States of America. They were trying to destroy the United States of America. And sometimes people can get really confused, you know, about what a patriot is. And uh, I think that term has to be really kind of um, redebated and recalculated about what it means to stand up for your country. As James Baldwin said, the reason I criticize my country so much and exercise my constitution right is not because I hate her. It's actually, actually because I love her so much. And that's very poignant. And you've heard that many, many times. So people that, that fight to unify the country, to keep us together, you know, to do the things that the Constitution gave us, the privileges and the rights to do, that's patriotism. And sometimes it requires dissent. Sometimes it requires being honest about who your history is. And I think this lesson of patriotism is critically important to us going forward. And I want my I want the word back. Well, I couldn't agree with you more, uh, Mayor yes, Mitch. Sir. I couldn't agree with you more. It, it is it is about this country. And, and people people that fight to destroy your country don't get to be patriots. They're traitors. Because that's the only, only thing the Constitution, crime in the Constitution, Article 3, Section 3, says uh, levying war against the United States is treason. So uh, that's another word that we should, we should be careful about. But patriotism, I agree. It's fighting for your country and for what's best for your country. And so I, I applaud your patriotism, Mr. Mayor. Thank you, sir. I do too. All right. Well, what a great discussion. Uh, if you want to, Mayor, stay on because we're going to go to Bow Hunt's 10 Greatest West Point Graduates. And uh, if you have any kind of historical opinion, please feel free to join in. But uh, sure. Al, why don't you talk and then talk to the general about it because he has your list and 
you know, we all we, we want to hit quibble here a little bit. I think well, he already is so much more knowledgeable than I am. But I would just say, uh, as I told the general, I went to West Point about eight years ago. Jack Reed, the senator from Rhode Island, I was having lunch with, and I told him I've been to Annapolis several times to give lectures, and he asked about how many times I've been to West Point, and I said I never had been, and he said that was a sin. So he arranged for this, and it was a wonderful three days, general. It really was. I was so I, I just was blown away by those cadets and the place and everything else. And I, so I wrote a column, but I thought this was such a great experience. I want to have some fun writing some other stuff. So I just <clears throat> thought I'd put out my list of the 10 most, I don't know what I call them, significant West Point alums, not necessarily the best generals. And <clears throat> the minute it ran, I regretted number 10, Norman Schwarzkopf. But, you know, I thought the first nine were I, I could I could live with. I thought they certainly made, made, made sense. But you're the expert. Tell me where I got it wrong and if I got it right any place. Well, I think you certainly got a lot right. I would put Grand number one as the you know the greatest soldier again, other than Washington, who picked the, the picked the army blue color on the, in the in the American Revolution. But Grant, I would put number one. And you had Ike, which was great. But there were some that I would have put in there that you didn't have. Uh, one was Benjamin O. Davis Jr. Uh, and Davis uh, was the first graduate of West Point, first black graduate of West Point in the 20th century, endured near torture of physical and psychological isolation because they silenced him while he was at West Point. No one talked to him for four long years. Um, and at a place as isolated West Point, that was just terrible. He then went on uh, to lead the, the Red Tails, uh, the Tuskegee Airmen in World War II. He helped the Air Force become the only service that that integrated initially in 19, uh, when, when Truman ordered it. The rest of the services all fought against it. And he did that and continued a, a, just a remarkable Air Force career and eventually became, uh, Clinton, in fact, uh, made him a four-star general after he'd already retired. One of my great heroes. Another great hero is Charles Young, you may not have heard of. Young was the third black graduate of West Point who, uh, um, what was uh, the first black uh, commander of more than just a few handful of people, really, until the late 20th century. Um, he is someone who would have been a force. He was the first national uh, uh, park superintendent as a black man, first mi black military attache. Um, and he was forcibly retired by Wilson uh, during World War One because they would not allow him to command white troops. And they, they said he wasn't physically capable. So what did he do? He went from Wilberforce, Ohio rode his horse 500 miles uh, straight to Washington to show that he was fit. Of course, it wasn't about his fitness. It was about the racism. And then they wouldn't give it to him, so he rode back to Wilberforce, and they put him back in uniform after, uh, after World War I. So the only reason he didn't become a high-ranking general is simply because of racism. Another one is uh, George Goffles, the one who did the Panama Canal. Engineering is so important in West Point's uh, the foundation of West Point, and he did the Panama Canal, was really the one that unscrewed the mess of World War I logistics. Another great general is Leslie Groves. I don't know if I put him up there, but he did the Manhattan Project. He also yep. did uh, the Pentagon, you know, which you may have seen. And uh, I think I think the other ones you got, I, the ones that just that I love, George Thomas, who is the Rock of Chickamauga, a Virginian who stayed loyal to his nation. Um, other possibilities would be some of our astronauts, Michael Collins, Buzz Aldrin, which are which did remarkable work early in that. And Hap Arnold, who was the first five star in the Air Force, really founded the Air Force. Not that they, I care that much about him because I don't. But if I did, I would say Hap Arnold. So I think the ones you, I love Ridgeway uh, and other ones. And I could if you made me, I could take some, a few off of yours. But I think you got it right, too. The bottom line is 
more than 10 great West Pointers because West Point is the greatest mission statement of any school in the country. It's to educate, train, and inspire leaders of character for the nation who live the values of duty, honor, country. Uh, how can you not love that? Boy, I'm in. James, can I make one more point about, you know, the incredible okay, experience? all the time you want. That's the beautiful thing about this show. We yeah. don't have to cut to commercial I, break. We don't <clears> have to <throat> say, uh, let, me, let, me, let me throw it to you, Rachel. <laughs> one of the things oh, yeah. that struck me, General, about West Point is that it always was a good academic institution. But over the last 50 years, it has become a much better. It is a great academic mm. institution. At the same time, it went from a place that had very, very few people, uh, very few people uh, from the minority populations, to a place that's done a pretty darn good job. Still more to go, but I forget the exact percentages. And what that shows is when you do whatever we call it, affirmative action, equality, when you do it correctly, it can also be incredibly inc- 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 add a lot of value. I couldn't agree more. So West Point is now 15, 16% black cadets, which dwarfs uh, made other elite colleges, you know, of that type. So we have done an amazing job of that. I mean, it, it's still, we still have a way to go because we represent America and America has problems with race. But, <laughs> but, what, but what we have done, I think, is to show that America is great because of its diversity and its army is great when it represents that diversity as well. We have a great army because we have a great country. And when our country best represents our people, we are more effective uh, than, when, than, than when we don't. And so I think that's one of the reasons why we are a more effective army. And West Point has certainly worked hard to be, be more diverse. And I, I think you're exactly right as well, to be more, uh, to make sure that that academic uh, is rigorous. It's, uh, it, it's free to talk about the things like Confederate memorialization that we need to talk about. Um, and to make sure that we're, we're educating uh, their character, to make sure that when they go out into the army, that they lead America's sons and daughters in combat, which remember, no nation goes to war more often than America. We, we, are, we are not a militaristic nation. In other words, we're not a nation that, that, um, that, that has tanks rolling down Pennsylvania Avenue or Fifth Avenue. Almost did. Thank goodness we didn't. Um, yep. But we are a warlike nation. What I mean by that is we go to war more often than any other nation since World War II. We solve problems militarily. Maybe not. That's not necessarily a good thing, but it does mean that our that our army and our nation and our military has to be ready at all times because we never know where the heck we're going to go. But but we well, will I, go somewhere. I, I also they've they've done better with women. When I was there for that <clears throat> that parade, which I just love, the captain of the corps was a woman, uh, Lindsay. Right. Uh, I, I think her name was Lindsay Balachek. I haven't kept up with her. Lindsay Danilak, as a matter of fact. Right. She right. was going to go on to become a combat um, uh, helicopter pilot. Uh, and uh, but I also would tell you, General, that day Wake Forest did beat Army in football. <laughs> yes, yeah, I know. But, but I tell you, uh, the, the Army team's been doing pretty daggum well. We, we've got sure a, we've got a great program going. There. And I tell you, football as uh, and James, you know that was LSU. I mean, I tell you, you can we can do just about anything at West Point. But man, if your football team's not winning. Uh, it, it all goes to hell. So yeah, we, we, we've, uh, we've, maybe beat y'all like 10 years in a row, I think. Yeah, it was a little longer than that, but we were, who's counting? Who's counting? (laughs) Man, I'll tell you though, when you go into that, that Mikey stadium, uh, you know, you do see the ghost of Blanchard and Davis, uh, and, uh, and Dawkins. Uh, it really is, uh, it's, 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 it's an incredible place, General. It really, it is. And of course, name for, Named for Dennis Mikey, who lost his life in the Spanish-American War. And I think that's one of the things I like about many of our uh, uh, sports complexes at West Point is their name for, for cadets went into the Army and then, then, and then gave the last full measure of devotion 
uh, to their nation. And that's one of the things that makes West Point different than every other school. I mean, every other, we have one mission, and that is to make sure that they are ready to go into the United States Army and, and serve, uh, serve their nation in uniform. And again, that's the, it's that great part of that mission um, uh, that, that I love being a part of for nearly two decades. So, I, I mean, I do have nothing but, but great things to say. But, but like any institution, you know, it, 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 uh, it, it has to have accountability and it has to have our civilian bosses ensuring that we're doing the right thing. Because most changes in the Army and at West Point come when our civilian bosses demand it, whether it's integration or, or bringing women in or ending uh, uh, the, uh, the terrible policy of don't ask, don't tell. All those things came when our politicians demanded. And that's what, you know, that's one of the reasons why when real change happens in the military, it's because the American people through their elected leadership demands it. Is there still a Lee Barracks? There is still a Lee Barracks. Yes. Is it going to change? Uh, uh, well, I, you know, I'm a member of this uh, commission to um, to look at uh, one of the great honors of my life is I get to I just took the oath again here recently uh, to join this commission. And uh, I, my, one of my uh, I would say my job is to make sure that those who we commemorate. Remember, there's a difference between history and commemoration. History is what we study. We're always going to study uh, the Civil War at West Point, And right. we'll say that Lee beat Hooker at Chancellorsville. But who we commemorate means who do we value as a society? And I, I certainly want to make sure that who we commemorate represents the values, diversity, and courage of the American uh, soldier, sailor, airman, and marine. So, um, and, and to me, Lee doesn't. Lee, Lee does not do that. James, I'm monopolizing this, but just finally, one of my closest friends and colleagues at the University of Pennsylvania is David Eisenhower, General, who mm. says that his grandfather, who he was very close to, actually fought World War II largely through the prism of the Civil War because that's the war he learned at West Point in the class of 1915. So you're right. The history is terribly mm. important, and that's different than honoring those who betrayed their country. Yeah, but, but in fact, Eisenhower hated military history at West Point. And the reason he hated it, and he says this in his, in his autobiography, At Ease, which is just a wonderful book. You know, he was also a great writer. I mean, sometimes these great generals are great writers. And he wrote that he hated it because it was an out-and-out -out memory course. And in fact, when he went to Gettysburg, and everybody went to Gettysburg in those days, his final exam was to memorize the location of every general officer on the Battle of Gettysburg, which is— Awful. I mean, it's just terrible. Yes, it is. Terrible. So it took another general, Fox Connor, to really show him the importance of military history. And then he really got it. I mean, he's one of the best yeah. read great intellects in the Army. But, um, but, but that's what we have to think about this critically. And we can't, we can't let the smell of gunpowder seduce us into just what the mayor was saying, to look at the X's and O's of, of military history. We've got to look at the purpose. And that goes back to the purpose of the Civil War. It's the same way. We've got to understand the purpose, why we're fighting and it to not just how we fought. James Carlo, so, I can't believe that I, I blocked you. So out I, have, <laughs> I have a couple of, I do I have a couple of comments that I want to make about what I just heard, which was fantastic and full of, you know, wonderful, wonderful comment. A couple things. First of all, it should go without saying that I have the highest regard for men and women who serve our country uh, and first responders. Anybody who puts their life in, in line and is, and is willing you know, to, to sacrifice themselves for other people. Uh, that does not mean, however, that all of our institutions um, have always been right about everything. And on the issue of race, every institution in our country has to do a deep dive. I know that General Austin, who was the first person of color to, to, to serve in that position, is thinking about um, the issue of white supremacy in and out of the military, folks that go into the military, get the training, come back out and then use it for the wrong reason. 
Uh, and I know that he's going to do a deep dive on that. I know also, um, and Ty, I'm, I'm thrilled to know that you're on this commission, that, you know, we're examining this issue of the names of, of our bases. Can you imagine if you're a young African-American soldier, man or a woman, and you're reporting to duty and you have to walk through the gates uh, of a military base who's named after a general that fought to destroy the country so that you could still be a slave? Just think about that for a second. When you say we want the military to reach out to people and we want it to reflect our community and we want it to be diverse. These stories are replete with with stories of having to fight for the country and then coming home and not being able to, you know, go into the front door or the back door. And so that that idea of unpeeling, you know, that side of what we did doesn't mean that the military is awful or terrible. It does mean that we've had many blind spots. And if we want to fix it and if we want to and we want to include everybody and then you start asking yourselves who we revered and who we didn't. So you guys were talking about Lee. There's a general. I don't think he went to West Point, but his name was Andre Calu, African-American. He's one of the first black officers in the Union Army, and he was killed in combat during the Civil War. Um, at the siege of Port Hudson, but he was credited with being one of the great leaders. He's never really been recognized historically. And so if you're a young African-American soldier or a man or a woman and you want to do it, you say, you know, are they lifting me up? Do I have a chance to go forward? Can I move up in the military? Can I do that? The question is, is, is the military like, like government or like the church or like the NBA or the NFL or whatever it might be? Or is it Wall Street or the Federal Reserve? You start asking your things, yourself these things about whether or not we've helped lift people up or we've pushed them away. The answer is pretty obvious. The question is, what are we going to do to change it? And I'm thrilled, Ty, that you're working you know, hand in glove with the leadership to make sure that we that we walk the walk um, as we begin to more aggressively talk to talk on these kinds of issues. Let, let me just give let me just give one uh, if I could, Ms. Mayor, just give one example of what these bases that are currently named. We have uh, Fort Gordon, and Fort Gordon is in uh, Georgia oh. uh, near Augusta, and it's named for uh, um, uh, uh, for a Confederate general, um, John Brown Gordon. Never went, never fought in the U.S. Army, and after the war. Um, he founded the Ku Klux Klan, the white terror organization in the state of Georgia. And then he gave a speech to black Charlestonians in 1868 saying, if you demand, uh, black people demand equality, I promise you we will start a race war and the 40 million of us will exterminate the 4 million of you in a race war. So that's who we've named these posts after. And we named them in World War I and World War II when the army was a white supremacist organization and when the South was a racial police state. And so we do have to make sure that, that, that our values are, and our commemoration equals our values. And currently there is an enormous disconnect between that. And, and, and until we get that right, then you're right. I mean, Fort Lee, Virginia is 50% black soldiers serve at, at Fort Lee after someone who fought so long and so hard to keep um, uh, uh, their ancestors enslaved. Um, so yeah, this is something that I feel very passionate about. I'm extraordinarily honored to serve my nation again. And uh, I'm particularly excited to serve under uh, General, I mean, under Secretary uh, Austin, who is who is an enormous, a fantastic leader. Well, well we're uh, honored to have you on this program. And Mr. Mayor, I wanna thank you very much. And I wanna tell everybody out there, it's called Robert E. Lee and Me. It is a terrific book. Once you pick it up, you're not gonna put it down. You have done a, you, you, you really made a tremendous contribution to, to, to this important history, General. Thank you very much and best of luck to both of you. Oh, thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you, Ty.
Hey, James, as usual, we have some terrific questions. This is from Paul and Palo Alto. This is, this is a good one. Both of you have been married to women for a long time who also work in media and in politics, Judy Woodruff and Mary Madeline. What are your words of wisdom for approaching political topics when you and your family members might disagree? James? <laughs> Try to avoid it, but sometimes you can't. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's amazing when you're in Washington, in politics, you tend to, to meet uh, something. When we got, first got married, a book came. I remember Walter Shapiro, I think yep. one of these reporters said, it would have been amazing if either one of them would have married a tree surgeon from Idaho. <laughs> yeah. So you get these yeah. kind of mixed marriages. You get like the George Conway to Kelly Anna. You know, Anna Bennett and John Buckley. And that, that, that's not uncommon or where two people, in your case, and you and Judy, you know, two people in the same profession. It, you throw boys and girls together in a big bag and shake it up. No telling what you're going to come out with. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. You know, uh, when I, Novak, the late columnist Robert Novak, used to say that when Judy and I got married in 1980, we both had careers. I was at the Wall Street Journal. She was at NBC. And she said, after a long discussion, she finally consented to let him keep his maiden name. So I have been hunting ever since then, and I'm appreciative of that. <laughs> Our next question is from Zach in Idaho. And also, it's the same question really from Leo and, and uh, Rancho Mirage uh, and James from London. Uh, is there any way to end the Senate de facto filibuster so you can get a voting bill through the Senate? Uh, it, it'll take uh, a change in the filibuster rules, I think, on a one-time basis only. I think it'll happen, even though the conventional wisdom is it won't. I think it'll happen because of Joe Manchin is the key figure here. I think he and the president of the United States at some point will make this happen, Joe to Joe, uh, and that we'll get that incredibly important uh, uh, voting bill through. Well, you know a lot more about that into the business than I do, and I, I, I hope and I pray you're right, because if we don't get this bill through, it, 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 people are going to lose faith in this country. I mean, how in the world you have an entire party dedicated to trying to stop people voting? Uh, and I said uh, on, on well, I guess it was R. Melba show, that, you know, generally if you're white, you can't say what black people are thinking, but I can tell you this right now, the right to vote is sacred to African-Americans. They know how hard it was to acquire and where people like you and I probably take voting for granted. Don't kid yourself. They don't take it for granted. And, this, yeah. and they, the effort to do this in particular in a state like Georgia where they have voted patiently for change and they finally got it done and they're going to take that away. I, I'm, I'm, it's not going to end well. They better not do this. Boy, that's for sure. And uh, the next question is from Paula. Paula, I'm going to read your question, even though you didn't tell us where you're from. So I want, want you to ask to send another question and then let us know where you're from. But she asked, James, do you think there's a relationship, imagine this, between the Department of Justice under Trump not pursuing the IG's Elaine Chow abuse of office allegations and McConnell's Trump sycophancy on uh, impeachment? Do I think that? Yeah. Yeah, I, th I think that. I don't know it. But yeah. I, if, 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 if I'm, I'm highly suspicious that there's a connection, but I should be clear that I, 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 I have suspicions. I just don't have any evidence. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 would, I would concur. Uh, Steve in Sonoma, California. We have a big California uh, group this week. Uh, we've been hearing for years about the demographic wave that's going to relegate the Republican Party to permanent irrelevance. You know, they went and after the last election, they, you know, had this big meeting and they said they were going to reach out and all that. Uh, they've abandoned that uh, now, uh, Steve. Uh, and they decided that they can go and play to fear. 
that they have been able to pick up uh, more uh, more uh, Latino votes than before, even cut a little bit into male blacks. Uh, but they're really they're they're really going to play the rural card, the hate card, and um, not that all their voters are hate or haters because they're not. But uh, I think the grievance that Trump has uh, personified for four years is still going to be the hallmark of the party for the foreseeable future. Well, it, it certainly feels that way. I mean, it looks like Trump's star may be diminishing a little bit, but I don't think Trumpism is diminishing one whit. Yeah, and I think it's yeah. going to be that there's going to be a real nostalgia. Uh, for the return of Trump, that I got nothing, not anything close for me or you or people like most people that are on this show. But you watch, there's going to be some myth created. Of, there's already myths, a thousand myths around Trump, but they'll settle on one, and it'll be just like the lost cause. It'll be a hundred percent bullshit, but it could be as destructive as a lost cause myth was. Yeah, it sure is. Well, keep those keep those emails and keep those letters coming because you all really ask good questions. You make us think, and we're going to try to get to as many as we can. And please tell us where you're from. That really counts. Hey, James, now for our, our Outrage of the Week, and there are so many, as always. But I want to focus on the, the right and so many Republicans. They just can't stay away from the race car. They're just drawn inexorably to it. The latest is opposing the nomination of Vanita Gupta to serve as Associate Attorney General. She has been a passionate advocate for civil rights. Guess what? She's pro-civil rights, and she's worked very effectively with law enforcement. And yet, those right-wing critics say she's for defunding the police and she's got radical ideas. She's been opposed by people like Utah Senator Mike Lee, who's supposed to be this thoughtful conservative nonsense, and the right-wing judicial crisis network. They say she's a defunder of the police. Her nomination, James, has been endorsed by the Fraternal Order of Police, the National Sheriff's Association, and the International Association of Police Chiefs. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like a defund the police radical to me. No. <laughs> but look, again, we, we, we know the reason, right? It just, it, it, it's always, it's, it's always there. It's an undercurrent. And any time, so there's a bill that the Democrats passed, it's got, I don't know, 63% popularity. And, you know, they change the subject. Yeah. And my, I guess, non-outrage, outrage, is I, I want to commend the executives of Dr. Seuss's estate, all right? When, when I first heard about it, and, and as you know, and, and listeners of this show know, I, I, am, I don't like cancel culture. I, I, I don't like coastal, you know, smugness. I, I'm not big on any of that stuff. And so the initial thing was, is that the cancel culture, the liberals have gone so far, you know, they have... Dr. Seuss, the, the legendary, you know, well, first of all, it was done by a legally by the executive of the state that were looking out for the best of state. And when you look at those images, and Dr. Seuss, by all accounts, was a New Deal Democrat, all right? If you look at the, the images of those, of those black children in there, oh, my God, make you want to throw up. And that was, again, that was the way I'm not, that was the way people thought back then. But the fact that these executives took these books out of circulation, I think they made a very wise choice in terms of the children in this country. And they probably ended up making a very wise choice of the value of the estate that they are, you know, empowered to protect. 
So I, th- I think it, I, I, I wholeheartedly concur with the executive of Dr. Seuss's estate. And if you do, if you don't believe me, pull up the image. It'll, it'll change it. Our friend Walter Dillinger showed it to us on our Sunday call, and I went, "Oh my God!" Yeah, it's no it really is. And uh, yeah, you know, I I wish the um, I wish the people at Fox News and elsewhere would uh, pay some attention to who did no, this. No, I mean they got a they got a narrative, and that's all they talk about now. They're not yeah. talking about aid or relief coming to beleaguered working families of the United States and. You know, that Joe Biden is sticking up for people. No, uh-uh. It's all Dr. Seuss all the time. It's all cancer culture. It's all the Democrats, all Biden. All right. Yeah, it is. Uh, of course, James, we got we have one problem with this show this week. One big problem. And that is what are we gonna do for an encore? This was a terrific not, show. Yeah, God, we we're not gonna try. We're not gonna try. <laughs> okay. That's where you get into trouble. I mean yeah. and the guy was so thoughtful. And, uh, and, you know, in, in a way that only a convert can do. Yeah. 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 I mean, uh, that's true. All right. You have a good and safe week uh, and we'll be back next week. You bet. Signing off. Great show. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. When we'll be joined by theoretical physicist Sean Carroll to find out what's really going on in our universe. Anyone who wants to help me with this ahead of time, please email and maybe even our country. Following this episode, we would really appreciate it if you'd check out the links to our sponsors in the show notes. We deeply thank you for supporting them when you do because it makes this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our 2021 War Room planning. 